And as you're taking your seat, go ahead and grab your Bible and open up to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 8. The topic of this morning's message is power. And really, um, the power of wisdom, and honestly, it's kind of seeing how those two things relate together. How we need wisdom in the face of power, but how we experience great power when we exercise great wisdom. Abraham Lincoln once said, nearly all men can stand adversity, but if you want to test a man's character, give him power. Another author, ancient author, said these words, the measure of a man is what he does with power. There is no stronger test of a man's character than power and authority. We see this principle lived out on a daily basis. We see this in those who are in positions of authority over us, and we see this even in our own lives if we take a closer look when we exercise power over others. Every one of us in this room is under authority, is under a power that is over us, and every one of us in this room has or is exercising power or authority over others, at least in some regard. Yes, to varying degrees, but make no mistake about it, every one of us goes to this experience of being under power and having power. What you do with power says an immense amount about you. But perhaps more than what you do with power, how you respond to those in positions of power over you can say equally as much about you. What you do with it then and how you respond to it matters immensely for living well. And living well really has been part of the emphasis of the preacher in Ecclesiastes. He is concerned that we live properly. We live with a reality check. We understand how this world that has been broken by sin can be made right by God and how we live well in the midst of this broken world Life under the sun is challenging, and when it comes to power, the displays of power, the exercise of power, and our response to power, life under the sun can be incredibly challenging. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 excuse me, is a survival guide for life in a world where power is used by everyone either rightly or wrongly. It's a call to look at power and to live wisely in light of it, whether you have it or whether you are under it. And so I want to look at power this morning from really two different vantage points. I want us to see what we must recognize about power in this world, and I want us to see then how we must respond to what we recognize. Let's read uh, the first section together of chapter 8. We'll read verse 1 all the way down through verse 9. Here's what the preacher Says, he says, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, no, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. 
All this I observed while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. The first truth we must recognize is that there is in this world ordained power. There is ordained power, ordained by God himself, right power that has been given to humanity. And the response that we must have to this ordained power is simply this, we must humbly submit. This is what this first portion of the text is ultimately teaching us. If we're to boil it down, it can be presented in that very simple form. There is ordained power to which we are to humbly submit. And these verses really instruct us in some measure as to the role of uh, ordained power and, and really to the role of government in our lives. The whole context here is the context of a king, um, the one who is ruling, and uh, hopefully justly, but as we'll see, there are obviously aspects to the king's rule that are unjust. More than that, than simply how to re relate to government, to the role of government in our lives, they teach us how to act wisely in the face of all power and authority. They call us to recognize that God has indeed ordained power and authority, and we are responsible not for controlling the powers over us, but submitting to the powers over us. Verse 1 is kind of a transitional verse, moving us out of chapter 7 and into chapter 8. It could easily go with uh, either the end of chapter 7 or really the beginning of chapter 8. The preacher says this, who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. He's just come out of this section where he's reminded us, listen, of the limits of wisdom, that all wisdom it really does have limits, and the wise person understands the limits of wisdom. Wisdom cannot be ultimate. You can never have the right amount of wisdom that is necessary to be fully in control of your life or of the world around us. But he doesn't disdain wisdom entirely. In fact, he says that wisdom is a good thing when you understand that it is not the ultimate thing. Wisdom has its proper place in our lives, and especially as it relates to living this life under those who are in powerful positions over us. Chapter 8 says that there is so much that is outside of our control. So much of our lives are out of the bounds of our control. And while wisdom is rare and it is elusive and you can rarely find anybody who exhibits a really a truly a depth of wisdom, it is not something that is truly impossible to find and it is something that we are actually invited to come and seek out. We should all long for wisdom in our lives that helps us navigate the contours of this world and this life. Here we see that wisdom itself produces visible effects in somebody's life. It is something that can actually be physically identified at times in people's live, lives. You see this? Who is like the wise? Who knows the interpretation of things? A man's wisdom makes his face shine, and the hardness of his face is changed. Psalm 34 verse 5 says something similar to this. I believe it says this, those who look to him, speaking of God, are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. Those who possess a, a wisdom from God, even the Proverbs say this, they, they have a radiance about them. They demonstrate it in the way they live their lives. It's visible on their face. Those who lack wisdom, the foolish, you can often see it in their lives simply by looking at their demeanor. 
Those who are hard-hearted are obviously, according to this text, those who are trying to be the ones in control and those who are figuring out or not figuring out that they really don't have the control they seek for. But those who are resting in God and who have got wisdom from God, they have a sort of peace about them. They have a sort of joy about them that is visible in, in, in every area of their lives. You see, true wisdom brings a joy to life that changes everything, including our faces. It's seen in how we deal with those who are in authority over us, by the way. And that's what the context of this passage is reminding us of. You want to see wisdom in somebody? Well, look at how they deal to the author- with the authority figures in their lives. Look at how they respond to those in positions of power over them. Are they hard-hearted towards them, or do they demonstrate a kind of radiance that comes from God and trusting in Him, ultimately? Verses 2 through 4 unpack a little bit of this for us. It says this, I say, keep the king's command. There it is. There's the, a power that God has ordained, the king's command because of God's oath to him. And he gives us some practical advice. Just pay attention to this. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause. These things are are so obvious, aren't they? But at the same time, uh, we need to be reminded of this. For he does whatever he pleases, speaking of the king. He's the one with the power. For the word of the king is supreme. And who may say to him, what are you doing? Such great wisdom in these couple of verses. And what we see here ultimately, listen, if you just boil it down to this simple principle, what you recognize is that wisdom, listen, wisdom leads us to humble submission. Not prideful rebellion, not an arrogant anarchy, but a humble submission and a disposition that is visibly humble. You see, rather than responding to authority with a a flippancy or disrespect, which is common in our culture, it's so common, and and I believe it's, it's increasingly more common. There is a disdain in our culture for authority. And I mean all kinds of authority, everywhere from parents to teachers to politicians to pastors. Not you guys, you're great. There is, in our culture, this, this rebellion against authority, and that's not something that's simply inherent to our, in our culture. It's inherent in the human heart. That's why what he says way back then, over 2,000 years ago, is still so relevant for us today. This has always been the issue. People have always bucked against authority and power. People have always resented those who were in positions over them. I saw this firsthand in my own house this morning when my three-year-old son said, Dad, get me food. (laughs) To which I said, I am not your servant. And he looked at me with a smile on his face and said, yes, you are. (laughs) We have to have a chat when I get home. The general principle, again, here is submission, humble submission. This is what pleases God. And specifically, listen, look at the context. Specifically, humble submission to governing authorities who are ordained by God. Martin Luther called this the duty of political obedience. And if you want to really boil it down to a a political context, here's what you can kind of pull out of this. Every Christian is called to be a faithful, law-abiding citizen. And yes, that does include paying your taxes. 
The underlying reason for this kind of humble submission is not simply practical. It's not utilitarian in the sense that, well, that's just going to help everything function well. It's actually theological. That's what he says in verse 2. He says, keep the king's commands. Look at this, because of the king's of God's oath to him. Now, there's a couple of different ways that translators have taken this, and it's possible, really legitimately, to take this in two separate ways. It can be translated either because of the oath uh, of God, or, in other words, because of the oath that the king has made to God, or, that, or, or it can be translated because of the oath that you have made to the king as a citizen. In other words, don't go against your word that you have already given. Your integrity is at stake, and your character is at stake. But really, I think the way that the ESV has this translated is likely the way it's supposed to be. It's talking about God's oath to the king. Now, there is a, a specific biblical context in which this passage comes to us that we need to be careful to understand. This is talking about the nation of Israel, where God was um, the theocratic ruler of the nation. He ruled through the king. He established the law of the nation of Israel. And this was different from all of the other nations around. We understand that we, as the church, living in our context, are not Israel, and that our rulers have not received this same covenant that God had promised to the kings of Israel. God had promised in 2 Samuel 7 to King David to make a covenant whereby somebody from his line would sit upon the throne of Israel. There would be a king who would reign forever. God promised that to the nation of Israel. That's not the case with us in our land, but God has placed government as a rightful authority in our lives. And that theological truth should govern our humble submission just like it was intended to govern their submission back then. It's important to understand that government is a part of God's good provision for humanity. You say, well, all government? Is all government a part of God's good plan? Listen, the principle of government is according to God's good plan. Government, as we will see, can be greatly abused and can be the cause of much injustice in the world, but that does not remove this idea that the principle of government, and by the way, different forms of government, are in line with the ordained power of God. Government is a form of grace that God has given to humanity. God himself instituted the very first government. All you have to do to understand that is go back to the Garden of Eden. You see, the government is not even a result of sin. It was something God had planned for the health of humanity. Here is God as he creates Adam and Eve. He places them in the garden, and he gives them what some theologians refer to as the dominion mandate. He calls them to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth. He calls them to work and keep the land. He calls them to have dominion over the land. In other words, Adam and Eve were the first king and queen of the world, ruling on behalf of God himself, who was the ultimate king of all creation in all of the universe. God gives this authority structure at the beginning, and presumably, if Adam and Eve were faithful and hadn't fallen into sin, they would have created a government structure that would have been righteous and right. I mean, somebody had to eventually, once they, once they created cars, somebody had to figure out and make rules about which side of the road you had to drive on. 
Somebody had to determine how life was going to best operate, how trade was going to occur, how the exchange of goods and services would be provided in a healthy and right way. You see, all of this is according to God's plan. And then sin enters the world and disrupts God's rule and Adam and Eve's rule over all of creation. Anarchy ensues, and what we see is that the governments of the world are in conflict with one another, and that leads right into just the devastation of the entire earth through a flood. Sin rules the earth. Wickedness and violence are perpetuated. But what is so fascinating is that after the flood, all of a sudden, here comes God in Genesis chapter 9, and he speaks again to Noah, righteous Noah, whom he has saved along with his family. And he begins in chapter 9 to restore this dominion mandate. In fact, the very same language is used for Noah as it is for Adam. This idea of being fruitful and multiplying and filling the earth. Now, there's a a really important point here. This is a recreative act of God. He is restarting, in a sense, creation, although it is not the ultimate restart in the ultimate recreation. It is a glimpse of how God will one day purge the earth of sin and wickedness, and he will again, listen, establish rightful rule upon this earth. But here comes the first human government that is intended to be righteous. And in uh, chapters, really, or chapter 9 and verses 5 through 7, he outlines here even the first laws that are to be instituted, and it's fascinating. The first law that is instituted in the nation, excuse me, even before the nation of Israel, is capital punishment. And he talks about, listen, if you take somebody's life, somebody's life is going to be required in return. You say, well, why why is this so important? Well, don't forget Cain and Abel. Don't forget all the wickedness that they experienced on the earth. But, But here's what you need to see. God is establishing government, and he's teaching us some very important things about the role of government. Government will be established to protect and preserve humanity. It was a means by which humanity, listen, would would thrive in this world, and the way in which God would do that is by restraining wickedness and evil on the earth, and by instituting punishment for crime, and here he speaks of the greatest crime of all, he is also establishing, listen, here's why capital punishment in this context is so important, he's establishing the value and dignity of human life. He's telling people that if you want to attack what God has made in his own image, you have to understand the value of what I have made, how much I care for what I have made, and if you take a life, you will forfeit your life. You see, God is establishing that government is given and governing authorities are given and their public policies are intended to be working against and restraining evil and to promote justice in this world and then therefore the flourishing of society and you need to see this connection too. Where government flourishes well, so too does the mission of God. It lays a framework for God's mission to continue moving forward. Scripture speaks so much about uh, the ordained power of God and the ordained government that God has given. Let me just give you a sampling of scriptures here. Uh, Proverbs first, Proverbs uh, chapter 8, verses 15 and 16 says this, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. By me princes rule and nobles all who govern justly. Look at this next verse. In uh, Romans chapter 13, New Testament makes this abundantly clear as well. Let every person be subject, look at, to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. 
And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good. And you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. He is speaking, by the way, in the context of a very secular government, the government of Rome. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. There it is, by the way, that is capital punishment being advocated for in the New Testament. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. You see, part of the form of God's justice, even in a New Testament context, is capital punishment that the government has been rightly given by God. Notice this next verse, 1 Peter 2.14 says this, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Just another picture of how God has ordained this. And then finally, look at the words of Jesus. I love this, so helpful. He's speaking to Pilate. Listen, before his own unjust crucifixion, the unjust, listen, decree of Pilate, he says, so Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given to you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. The authority of governing officials comes from God. You say, well, what about corrupt, evil government? Well, just ask Jesus. He was speaking to Pilate about to be put to death. And we're going to get a little bit into that in a, in a little bit in the next point. But just see this truth that the Old Testament consistently uh, condemns kings and other rulers for their failures to uphold a just legal system. Just because God ordains something, um, uh, even an unjust government, does not mean he advocates for the injustice that they perform. Throughout the scriptures, God upholds justice. He condemns Israel's kings and rulers time and time again for their injustice, for their inability or their lack of desire to care for the poor and obey his law, to oppress people and to use people for their own advantage. And the scriptures provide, by the way, lots of examples of godly people who are humbly submitting to the God-ordained powers that are over them, even unjust rulers. I think of two specific examples. I think of Daniel who submitted himself uh, while in the Babylonian captivity. I think of Joseph, who submitted himself uh, to an evil, wicked Pharaoh, who was not a, a lover of God. And what they demonstrate for us is, is a humble submission that God blessed, even in challenging situations. Verses three through six really outline what this should look like, and it's, it's, it's just so clear that it doesn't even need much explaining, but the picture here is very obvious, and I just would boil it down to this simple point. Know your place. Know your place. Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing, and the wise heart will know the proper time and the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything, although man's trouble lies heavy on him. So often our problem is that we want to take matters into our own hands. We want to rebel against authority. We want to resist authority. And there is a great warning in this passage to simply know our place. I was speaking last week after the service with a, a, 
uh, two individuals from this church, and, um, and, and a name was, was brought up. And we see we found out that we went to the same elementary school. We are over a decade apart, which was very discouraging for me because I was a lot older. But um, they, they brought up a name, uh, Mr. Ingalls. Now, many of you, this, this name means absolutely nothing, but for me, I shuddered when I heard the name. You see, Hugh Ingalls um, is a good man, but he is a, a man that was brought into my elementary school. I, I was in grade um, six. I can remember it because Hugh Ingalls was a, a terrifying individual. He was an army drill sergeant, no joke. I mean, the guy walked in and he had impeccable posture. And he could yell like nobody else I'd ever seen. And not to mention the guy was just, you know, he had muscles on top of muscles. He was jacked. And he was a scary, scary man. And he took nothing from no one. And they brought this guy in. I mean, he was handpicked because of my older brother's class. How rebellious and resistant. I gotta be really careful. He's controlling my mic right now. He was good, but his class was just horrendous. I mean, the disrespect from this class, the rebellion against authority was like nothing the school, I think, had ever seen. So they actually handpicked this teacher to come in to straighten out this class, to deal with this class, to show these kids what authority looks like and how they must learn to submit to authority. Listen, they brought him in so that they might know their role, that they might know their place. And I can remember, I have, I have nightmares still, I think, of seeing him dealing with this class. The, the just, just the straightforward drill sergeant kind of mentality that you can imagine. He took no, I mean, I can't remember how many expulsions there were that year, but it was through the roof. And he's a good man, by the way. He, he was incredibly kind. I, I figured out um, my place very quickly. And uh, I remember thinking as I was kind of coming up and had to have him as a teacher not to cross him ever, and I remember thinking very carefully about how I was going to act and speak. But you see, that's kind of the point of this text. You're not supreme, and neither am I. God has put people over us who have power over us. And we need to be very careful in how we respond and how we act. You say, well, how do I foster this kind of humble submission that the Lord is calling me to? 7 through 10 kind of outlines this for us. For he does not know what is to be, for who can tell him how it will be? In other words, that, that's a statement that says, listen, you don't know it all. And then he gives some examples of, of not knowing it all and not being in control of it all. And this is our, our fundamental problem. This is what causes us often to resist humble submission. We think we know more than we do. We think we've got it all figured out. Listen to what he says. No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, no, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. So what is he talking about? Listen, if you want to foster humility, it's important to grasp this overarching point of these verses. Believe that you don't know and that you can't control everything. This will help produce humble submission in your life. Believe that you don't know everything and you can't control everything. I mean, believe that with the very core of your being. Embrace that reality, especially when it comes to those who are in positions of authority over you. I looked at my son this morning when he, when he claimed that I was his servant and um, I looked at him and all my other kids sitting around there, and this is the language that we often use, and um, for some of you, this is going to sound a, a little bit authoritarian, but bear with me, it's really not. I looked at him, I said, I said, really? I'm your servant? I said, who's the boss around here? And he goes, 
You are. I said, okay, we're on the right path. But here's, and we, we do this often with our kids when they're in pa- places of rebellion, when they're really struggling to submit and they're, you know, throwing fits. We try to, and, you know, but, but I looked at my son, who, who's the boss? You are. And then I, here's what we always follow it with. Who, who made me the boss? God did. Yes. And I follow with this, listen. So when, when you rebel against me, who are you rebelling against ultimately? God. Yeah. Is that okay with you? No. I'm sorry, Daddy. You're like, man, he's got this parenting thing figured out. Listen, that happens like one in a million, okay? (laughs) But you see, what we're trying to instill in our kids is that every one of us, listen, every one of us is under authority, and ultimately, we're under the authority of God. God has placed legitimate authority in our lives, and listen, the goal and the desire of God is that that authority, the governing authorities over us, would lead to our health, our protection, our flourishing. It's not always the case, as we'll see. But the truly wise and truly humble are those who they don't pretend to know at all. The world is full of a bunch of armchair politicians, a bunch of armchair business owners, a bunch of armchair theologians who think they know better than they do, who, who make claims all the time. Well, if I were in charge, I, you know, I'd do it like this. I could do a much better job than, than that person. My company, my boss does no clue what he's doing. I'm not arguing that sometimes it's not true, by the way. But can you hear the pride in a lot of those statements? I've got it figured out. I know what to do. I should be the one in charge. Our trouble, according to this text right here, is not only that we do not know the future, but we can't even control the present. That there are things that are so outside of the bounds of our control. When was the last time you had a day go exactly the way you had planned it to go? I have never had a day like that, not once in my entire life. I begin every one of my days by structuring my day, looking at the tasks I need to do, plotting it into my calendar and, and exa- you know, time frames, and it never goes the way I plan for it to go. Verse 8 makes four strong arguments for this. No one has power over the spirit, or, or that could be translated, the same word for spirit is the word for wind, and I actually favor that translation. The idea is this, like nobody control the wind. You, you are powerless over the forces of nature around you. The second argument there is no, you have no power over the day of your death. Listen, your gym membership may increase the quality of your life, but it won't give you one more minute than what God has allotted you. Powerless against death. The third thing there is the discharge from battle that he references. Look, no soldier in the midst of a battle can simply grab their pack and say, you know what, I'm getting a little sick of this this fight. Uh, Hey guys, good luck, I'll see you later. Did you know that desertion in the midst of a battle is still one of the most serious crimes in any, in any military? It is punishable still in most countries by death. 
You see, you don't have any power over this. You're not the one in charge. Can you hear him saying it? And fourthly, the idea there is that the wicked cannot deliver themselves. Listen, you can't just keep thinking that the more I sin, maybe the better life will get. Maybe I'll fix my problems with more, more pursuing the wrong things in the wrong way. No, and ultimately what we see is that man is powerless to save himself. And just powerless is the idea that jumps from this text. And this is our own situation too, if only we will save see it. All of us are under the authority of others. We all face an uncertain future. We are powerless to control our own destiny or to determine the days of our lives. You see, what then is the wise way for us to live? It's so clear from this text. The wise way to live is by humbly submitting to the God-ordained powers that he has placed in your life. That is the way to make sure your life goes better than it could be if you rebelled in pride. Let me give you four quick ways, four quick applications that this can happen in your life, especially as it relates to government. We'll just hammer through these quickly. The first, uh, and by the way, I'm just going to kind of anchor this first in um, 1 Timothy chapter 2. I believe we have that. There it is. Look at this. This is New Testament passage here. Paul says this, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. Listen to this. For kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. With that in mind, let me just give you four ways that we can demonstrate humbly submitting to the ordained powers in our lives. The first one is this, influence appropriately. Humbly submitting does not mean that we cannot influence government. And even in this passage, we see somebody who is in the presence of the king. They're they're given a degree of influence, but they're called to exercise that influence appropriately, wisely. And in our context, that would mean this. Listen, we we, we live in a democratic society where we can actually influence laws and policies and, and things like that. And the Bible would say, look, do that appropriately. Go through the right channels. I mean, contact the right people. Have the right attitude. I mean, we get to vote. Do you realize how much of a privilege that is? Most of the context that we're talking about here, and still most of the context around the world, they're not democratic societies. A ruler was simply placed in a position of authority and power over them, or it was a family dynasty. I mean, listen, this this is so helpful to remember. Sometimes we think, oh man, we have this, our government is so bad. This is not North Korea. This is not that bad, and we have been given by the grace of God so many avenues to influence appropriately, so do it through the right channels, through the right means, and listen, most importantly, with the right attitude. Secondly, live appropriately. Live appropriately. I mean, 1 Timothy 2 just just hammers this idea. Listen, again, just I, I want you to hear this. We are not called to be political revolutionaries. Some of you are obsessed with politics, and part of the reason is that is because you have put your hope and faith in politics. Again, I am all for politics. I think politics are great. They have their place. It's, again, a gift from God. But listen, some of us have slipped into idolizing politics as if politics is the answer to the world's problems. When the scriptures make it so clear, it's not. 
We are not called to be political revolutionaries. First Timothy chapter two tells us that we are called to live peaceful, think about this, peaceful and quiet lives. This is one of the greatest ways that we can have greater influence, not only in the politics that we are finding ourselves submitting to, but also in the people around us. Beware of falling prey to the belief that society will be perfected or that God's kingdom on earth will come by way of political policies and political involvement. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be involved in politics. That doesn't mean you can't be a politician. It simply means we must not put our hope there. We must put more, listen, more emphasis on the manner in which we are living before God. What this world needs first, listen, is not right politics, but regenerate hearts. It's been said like this, politics are downstream of culture. And a lot of us believe if we just change politics, we'll change the culture. I think scripture, according to 1 Timothy 2, affirms this, this principle that politics is downstream of culture. Listen, you want to influence politics more, start influencing the culture around you. That's why, by the way, at the end of this, what's tagged on is the idea that people need to be saved. The government has no power to change a heart, None. We're gospel revolutionaries who live, listen, as respectable citizens of the country that we are in because we are heavenly citizens of the country that's to come. The third way we can live in humble submission is this, to honor appropriately. The way we speak about and attack those in authority. Listen, this is, this is so true of Christians. I've heard this too many times from too many Christians. I've seen this from way too many Christians. The way that Christians are so willing to attack, listen, those in authority over them is ungodly. I am not suggesting you must agree with politicians over us. I am not suggesting that you have to get in line with every policy decision that's made, but I am telling you that the Bible prohibits you and I from being ungodly in the way we talk and think about those who are in positions of power over us. It's so often, just just flat out, let me be direct here, it is dishonorable and inappropriate. And one of the worst ways that this offense occurs is through social media. Everybody has courage behind a keyboard, don't they? But I'm telling you, and again, I'm all for modes of expressing yourself, modes of argumentation that can be utilized, but I, I am so sick of the way I see Christians respond in ways that are inappropriate and dishonoring even to people we disagree with and who we believe even can be doing great damage. Listen, I think we need more gratitude and less grumbling, to be perfectly frank with you. This is not communist China. It is not North Korea. We are living still amidst, even where where we see government going off the rails in our own country, we are living in one of the greatest places in the world when it comes to politics and freedom. Here's the final thing. Pray appropriately. Did you notice that this is how 1 Timothy 2 starts off? Did you know that we are called to pray for those who are in positions of leadership and authority in our country? It is commanded, by the way. It's not suggested. Can I just ask you really quickly, when was the last time you prayed for those who are politically speaking in our government over us? When was the last time you did that? I'll be, I'll be quite honest with you right now. For me, it's, it's been a long time. 
I mean, not that long. This week I was convicted about it, so I did it. But it's prior to that, it has been a long time. Uh, and I say that to my shame. And I, I'm, more, I'm more culpable in terms of the grumbling and complaining about the government than I am in terms of the gratitude to the Lord for the place that we live. And, and that, that has been made clear to my own heart this week. And God has been convicting me of that, and he's been trying to rip that out. And, and I'm, I'm praying that that continues, that there is a, a much greater hunger in my heart to pray for the government that God has put over our country. They need it, amen? Because they need Jesus. That's why they need it. They need Jesus. And the church of Jesus Christ needs good government so that it might flourish and accomplish her mission. And I, I wonder if so much of our frustration with government stems from our lack of praying for our government. In, in fact, let's just do something really quick. Let's make this really practical. I want you walking out of here saying you did something today with what we learned. I want you to bow right now and before the Lord, I want you to pray for our government. Just do that quietly by yourself right now. Go ahead. Just pray for our government. Pray for those who lead us. Pray that God gives them wisdom. Pray that God helps them rule with righteousness and justice, even though they may not know the source of that. Pray that God saves them. Just Father, in this moment, we want to be obedient to your word. And God, we want to acknowledge that you are the one who has put powers over us, and we live in a country, Lord, where, where the freedom we experience is like few others have ever experienced in the history of this world. And so, God, we just want to say thank you. We believe, Lord, that our government is not perfect, <clears throat> but it has been put there by you. And so, God, we pray for those who are in positions of authority. Uh, we pray, Lord, for our prime minister. We pray for the cabinet. We pray for those who lead in our, our local districts and in our, our towns and our cities. We pray for those, Lord, who are, who are striving to honor uh, the people that they lead. We pray, Lord, that they would serve well, Lord, that they would serve with righteousness and justice. And we pray, Lord, that you would, Lord, by your grace, open their eyes to the ultimate one who is just and righteous. We pray, God, that you would lead them to yourself. Give them wisdom, O oh Lord, and give us, Lord, a greater desire to pray for them. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Verse 9 does begin to remind us that, listen, all governments, though they are ordained by God, are not perfect. It says, all this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. He recognizes, listen, that there are those who can abuse power, and that's the second point here, abused power. And here's what we're called to, here's how we respond, with long-suffering. We recognize, listen, that there is such thing as abused power, power that is abused, but there is a call for us, listen, to be long-suffering in the process, in what we see. And verse 10 through 13, he says this, and I saw the wicked buried, and you can kind of hear the anguish in his words and, and the confusion and the frustration. He says, they used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. Here the wicked are actually praised as if they were righteous. 
This also is vanity, he says. He's so confused and perplexed by this and angered by this. And he says, what's the point of all of this? And listen to this in verse 11. Because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed speedily. The heart of the children of man is fully said to do evil. I mean, this is the way so much of humanity operates. Well, I did evil and no consequences came. So I guess who cares? I'll keep doing more evil. I got away with it this time. How many criminals start off with a minor crime and the reason they progress towards greater crimes is because they keep getting away with it, right? Justice is not executed speedily. I guess I'll try something a little more. I'll go a little further down the road. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. He's turning a corner here. He's recognizing that just because, listen, justice does not come speedily doesn't mean that justice will not come at all. And he begins to remind himself what is right and what is true, though this is what he sees, injustice and wickedness seems to prevail and go unpunished. We seem to live in an unjust world where injustice seems to rule and be pervasive. He then goes on to say, but I know, listen, I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Listen, I'm not living right now by sight, by what I see. I'm living by faith. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. You see, he's coming back around to this idea, listen, that justice is coming. The power and authority is ordained, yes, by God, but yes, it is often abused in our sin-sick, sin-cursed, sin-broken world. And we need to cultivate a realistic view here of the human heart when it comes to power. That's what this text forces us to do. You see, we can all think right now, even of situations in our lives, when those in positions of power have abused that power to hurt others or maybe even to hurt us. I, I can't tell you how many stories I've heard about abusive parents, and I, I just heard another one this week about somebody who is so tragically wrecked by abusive parents, an abusive father, an abusive mother. Maybe you've been hurt deeply by somebody who's abused their power over you. Maybe it was a parent. Maybe it was a, a teacher. Maybe it was a politician. Maybe it was a pastor. Maybe you've been significantly wounded and are still trying to recover. Every one of us, listen, has also considered this, been given power or authority, and likely we have chosen to use it to our advantage and the hurt of somebody else. This is a reality check for our own hearts. It's more than likely that everyone in this room has been abused by somebody in power and more than likely that everyone in this room has abused their power. So why? Why, why is this the reality? Why is this the, the, the reality of the world that we live in? You know, it's, it's been said, you've heard the phrase that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That, that is true, and I began with those quotes from Abraham Lincoln and from one other um, ancient uh, author, and, and there is certainly a sense in which those who are given power uh, begin to often be corrupted by that. I'll, I'll spare you the, the allusions to The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings again. 
Power can change people. But it is not, make no mistake about it, it is not power that's the problem. Power is not the problem. Power is like money. It is morally neutral. It's the sinful human heart that's the problem. The sinful human heart that gravitates towards abusing power, using power in a way, listen, that will grow their advantage and hurt the advantage of others. You see, the heart corrupts power. Power does not corrupt the heart. Power pulls at what is already present, buried deeply sometimes in every human heart, a brokenness by sin, an inability to submit to power, a longing to be autonomous. This was the problem even in Adam and Eve. And behind a lot of that in our culture, and, and I think it just in the human heart in general, you say, why, why is this present? Why does this, this longing for power exist in the human heart? I think oftentimes it's because of a longing for approval, a longing for significance, a longing for strength or ease or extravagance or identity. You see, everything that the preacher in Ecclesiastes has been hitting at, we use power to give us what only God can give us. Power becomes, for many of us, not just about the potential to influence others and to change things for good. Power, quickly, because of our sinful hearts, becomes about our own sense of self-worth. We can all commit injustice when we abuse power, and we see this injustice all around us because of the abuse of power. And this injustice, the problem of evil and the seeming lack of consequence is a massive problem for many. It's a problem even for the preacher when he's kind of focusing on life under the sun with God out of the picture. He looks at it and says, this doesn't make sense. This is so confusing. This is perplexing. I don't understand why justice can't come speedily, why the wicked can't be punished. But then he remembers what is true. By the way, just kind of as a side note, I, I, a side note. I wonder, maybe a sad note too. I don't know. Uh, but uh, as a side note, if if you're thinking like, well, well, how do we respond when people above us abuse their power towards us? Do we just continue to humbly submit? How, how do we how do we do this biblically? At what point, maybe you're asking the question, should we not obey somebody in authority? And here's the principle that I, I want to maybe present to you that I hope helps cement this in your mind. Listen, when the authority over you forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, you have freedom to disobey and not to submit. Let me say that again. When the authority over you forbids what God commands or commands what God forbids, you have freedom to not, I don't care what authority that is. That could be a parent, that could be a, a husband wise, that could be a church, that could be the governing authorities over you, that could be a teacher. When they command you, when they excuse me, forbid what God commands or they command what God forbids, then you can disregard it. This is what the apostles did in Acts chapter 5, isn't it? To the governing authorities, you decide what's better for us to obey you or obey God. We'll take our chances. We'll go with God. Like you think of Daniel on this, right? Daniel, I mean, even you think of the whole, the context of Daniel is one, again, again, being under secular, ungodly authorities, right? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they are commanded to do what God forbid. Bow down to my statue and worship me as God. Nope, not going to do it. Good, then you're going in the furnace. That's okay, I got my God with me. 
Daniel, you are forbidden to do what God commands. You are not allowed to pray. That's okay, I'll take my chances. Where's, where's the blinds? Let me just roll these up so you, you just know, make sure you know who's over my life and who I'm submitting to. But for many, this idea of injustice in the world is incredibly frustrating. And is there uh, no point to striving? This is what many people ask. Is there no point to striving to live righteously if, if injustice is going to prevail, if the wicked are going to continue to be praised at their funerals like the good? I mean, is there really no solution to this? Listen, humanly speaking, no. Humanity cannot cover all of the injustices. Humanity will never get it right. Our justice systems are flawed because they are governed by flawed human beings. But our perspective is so often so limited. And the hope here is in what we know to be true in verses 12 and 13. We know that justice is not always happening here and now, but there is a justice that awaits us all. There is, according to the scriptures, a final reckoning. Every single human being on this earth will give an account to the judge of the universe. Hebrews 9.27 makes this abundantly clear. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. You see, God is so patient, though. And this is where our response comes into play. We want it so speedily, and God's just like, just hold on, be patient, be long-suffering like I am long-suffering. You see, God is not, some of, us, some, some of us think, you know, God is a God of inaction. Why isn't he moving? God is not a God of inaction. He is not a God of indifference. He is not a God of injustice. If you think you hate sin, you have no idea how much God hates sin. His anger over the injustice of this world far exceeds any form of human anger. Oftentimes, unbelievers will, will actually use this idea of injustice in the world as a case against the existence of God. You see, evil exists, injustice exists, therefore God must not exist. Because if God is who you say you, he is, that he is good and he is holy and he is just, then he would punish the wicked. Where's your God? Why isn't he dealing with this problem? I'm so sick of this, all this crazy evil in the world. Why doesn't God come and fix this? Fix this? And you know what the simple answer is? This is a good one to use, by the way. If an unbeliever comes to you and says these kind of things, all you have to look at him and say or her and say is this. Listen, because God doesn't want to destroy you too. Do, do you realize that's the reality? You're like, yeah, why, God, why doesn't God come and just kind of punish the wicked right now? Because then you and I would be in a whole lot of trouble. And every person who has not bowed the knee to Jesus here now would be in a whole lot of trouble because we are all guilty. There is none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, every person would be in trouble. And God's long suffering, his patience, is an act of his grace so that he might gather to himself all those that he is calling, right? all of his children, all of his people. He is waiting patiently because he is still redeeming a people who are called unto him and the glory glory of his name. That's why God's justice is delayed, and we should not be angered by that. We should be praising God for that, because it means there's still time. There's still time for you. If you don't know Jesus, there's still time. God is just. He is holy. He will punish the evildoer and the wicked. You will face him one day and give an account for your life.
2 Peter 3.9, you're like, is this really biblical what you're saying? 2 Peter 3.9, just look, look at it on the screen behind me. I think. No. Let me look it up then. This is so good. This, this, this verse is so helpful. And this is one, I, I'm, I'm just, the Lord has been using this in my heart towards the end of this week. I'm committing this, this verse to memory this week. It is going to be just, and I pray God uses this to, to govern my heart. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain blessing. That's not the verse, that's chapter 3. I was like, that's not the one I was planning on memorizing. I don't know why. <laughs> but yes, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. God is still calling people by his mercy. I was reading this morning in my time, my kind of devotional time this morning, and I was reading Revelation chapter 6, and I'll just paraphrase it to you, but it was, it was just so caught, caught me, you know, Revelation chapter 6 is where the fifth seal is, is, is opened, and we have this picture of martyrs in this great tribulation time, martyrs who are before the throne of God, and, and you know what their plea to God is? How long, O Lord, until you avenge our death? You know what they're saying? That how much longer until you bring justice to the earth? How much longer until you show your power and your righteous, holy judgment upon the earth? And God's answer is remarkable. His answer is this. Listen, it's not yet. Just his, his, I'm paraphrasing. Right? This is Ian Hale's translation. He's saying, just be patient. I, I'm still waiting for more like you to get here. There's more martyrs to come. And by the way, that's just, I believe that's not just a statement that more Christians were going to be killed during this great kind of purging, this great persecution of the church. I believe that's a statement to this reality that God was still planning on saving people who in this time understood the cost of following Jesus. That when they said, I will follow Jesus, they knew that immediately they were forfeiting their life. God's like, don't you understand? I'm patiently waiting. Don't worry, the rocks will come. I will come on a white horse with a sword out of my mouth. I will bring full and final righteous justice and judgment upon the earth. Listen, but there are still more I am ransoming by my blood for my glory. More who will count the cost. More who will turn and give their life knowing that I gave my life for them. Well, this is what God is calling his church to God is long-suffering when it comes to the evil of this world, but do not mistake his patience with approval. His judgment is coming, and it will come like a thief in the night. It will be swift and devastating. It will not pay to not fear him now. But the fear of judgment is intended to open our eyes and to grab our hearts to see his grace. And finally, we see ultimate authority, which calls us to joyful surrender. And really, this is just super quick here. He says these words, There is a vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this is also vanity. And here's what he says. This is kind of the theme throughout the book. And I commend joy 
For man has no good thing under the sun but to eat and drink and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil though the days of his life, through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. And when I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on earth, but neither day nor night do one's eyes sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out all the work that is done under the sun. However much many he may toil in seeking, he will not find it out, even though a wise man claims to know it, he cannot find it out. Listen, the simple truth presented here is that we are not the ultimate authority God is. And rather than racking our brains trying to solve the world's problems and to solve all the injustice in the world, that's not to say we can't participate in this world in making things right here and now, but instead of fretting about it and worrying about it and being consumed by it as if it was actually under our control, this here is a call to recognize that He is the one who is in ultimate control. He will bring things to its proper time. He will judge when He sees fit, and everything will be done according to His plan, not ours. God has deliberately called us to enjoy the good things that he offers in this life and to not waste ourselves in anger over the problem of evil, but to trust him. He's got this figured out. God has deliberately made life unpredictable in order to thwart human efforts to master and control it. God doesn't want you believing you're in control. He wants you recognizing that he is. God is showing us that all things are in his hands, not in our hands. This is a call to live, not in ignorance, but in reality. And rather than saying, all of this evil and this injustice infuriates me, and it infuriates me that I have no power over this, I can't fix this problem, I can't sort it all out, the preacher is saying, listen, know instead that God has it all figured out and joyfully surrender to his ultimate power. When you truly get that, you can find true enjoyment in this life. A life free from anger, anxiety, and confusion. A life of joy, peace, a clarity. See how? Listen, judgment and justice are coming, but God is merciful. He wants to deal not only with the corruption in the world, but the corruption in our hearts. And the gospel of Jesus Christ shows us that he came in total power. The one from above, came down below in total power. He was never corrupted. He used his power to serve. He used his power to sacrifice, and he used his power to save. But we see in the gospel that all along, God had planned to save us, and his power would be controlled by his love. Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. You see, the gospel deals with our injustices when you are reconciled to God through his son, Jesus Christ, by faith. Your injustices will be settled when you put your faith and trust in him or when you stand before God on judgment day and give an account for your life. One way or another, justice will come. The question that you need to ask yourself this morning is this, will Jesus stand and confess you as his own on that final day? Will he stand in your place and say, I, I suffered for him and her. I paid the price in full for them. I am the one who is bringing justice through my blood on their behalf. Or will you stand naked and ashamed? Will you stand recognizing that you will spend eternity suffering the justice of God and rightly so. Have you joyfully this morning surrendered to confess Jesus as the ultimate power? 
the Lord of Lords and the King of Kings.'" 